of Canuck Central because yes, something has happened. Not just assistant coaches, and not just the absurd Canucks getting a new coach. I mean, it's Satyar Shah with Bick Nazar and Bick, and we considered maybe hopping on and doing an emergency podcast when the news came out that Jeremy Colleton is the new head coach of the Aberystwyth Canucks, and Brad Shaw's leaving the organization to join the Philadelphia Flyers, and Mike Yo's coming in, and Trent Call's coming in to be assistant coaches with the big club, and we thought, you know what, that's not big enough to really do an emergency pod, and the Canucks <laughs> said, hold our beer! And about two hours later, while I was enjoying a beer on a patio, I found out that, yes, the Canucks have signed Brock Besser to a three-year contract worth $6.65 million per season. And that brings us together, Bick, on this beautiful, sunny Canada Day to discuss Vancouver Canucks hockey. And to be honest, I'm excited to be here and talking about this because we've been waiting so long for something to happen. And finally, something meaningful has. Low key. What do we? What usually happens on July first? Yeah, it's Canada Day, but it's usually signing season and things are going down. So it's nice to get a signing on July first, uh, even if it may have pulled us away from our respective uh, evening plans. Yeah, I mean it, it's all good. We'll, we'll spend some time digging through this. <laughs> and we'll course. talk about the coaching stuff coming up coming up in a few minutes. But uh, let's dig into the Brock Besser thing. And and to be honest. This week, it didn't look good for Brock Besser. And mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that we heard and stuff I heard earlier this week was the contract discussions aren't really advancing. That's something a lot of people in the market heard. I know Irf talked about that. Rick Dollywall talked about that. Drance talked about that. And even when I checked in yesterday before Canuck Central, the word I got was not a lot of movement. They're not close at all. But one thing I mentioned to Jamie on the show yesterday was, and I mentioned this months ago, that there is a three-year deal to be had here. There's a three-year deal to be had somewhere in the $6 million region. And if both sides are willing to compromise, it's right there for the taking. So I wonder, and I told Jamie this yesterday, I wonder if they'll circle back over the weekend and see if they can figure something out before that July 2nd arbitration date. That's a real small little deadline. Let's see if that spurs on maybe some compromise. And, and I'm glad to see, Vic, that compromise happened. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like the way you frame that here of compromise. Too often when we get into these contractual discussions, trade discussions. We only look at it from the viewpoint of, hey, what side is winning and what side is going to take an L on this contract? But to be honest, like this is a compromise. I'm sure three years ago, Brock Besser wanted a long-term deal somewhere in and around this range to say, hey, I have some some security as a player. I can go focus on who I am. I don't have to always have these show-me deals. And we didn't really learn a whole lot, especially given what happened in the last season for Brock. It kind of regressed. Now, it's understandable why it could regress, but he put himself in another spot to say, hey, I'm not going to get another long-term deal. What works best for every party? And with the qualifying offer where it was, this is a very difficult situation for Patrick Alvine and Jim Rutherford to navigate. And while they might have preferred maybe something in the low sixes and Brock had the leverage with a 7.5 qualifying offer, where does it land? Somewhere in the middle and everyone kind of comes out with a compromise. Well, and it it really does come down to that compromise. And I'm glad you mentioned that it does come in maybe slightly higher than what the Canucks wanted. I think what the Canucks really would have liked was not to give a big raise on the 5.875 million he was making already based on how the past season went and everything. And they thought maybe we'd like to get something closer to the 6, 6.1, 6.25. The question was, would they be willing to go to that 6.5 range, a little bit higher, to make a deal happen? And you wondered if you know, the Besser camp will go. I would actually say that on this three-year deal, 
that Hankinson did all right getting mm-hmm. the 6.65. You know, I think I think they did a pretty good job on the on the agent side to get that 6.65. And I think that was important because Hankinson wasn't able to get the deal they wanted last time around. And I think that was a real factor here to make sure that for his client, he could squeeze a bit more out. It never made sense for them to hold firm on $7 million. The only way that made sense, Bick, I made this point yesterday to Jamie, the only way it makes sense if you're holding firm on $7 million per year is if you don't want to stay here. And if you want to stay here, you'll make a compromise. But I will give Hankinson credit. For him to get 6.65, that's a pretty good piece of business for his client. Yeah, if you wanted to push it and say, hey, take your qualifying offer next year, we'll do it again, and then before you know it, you'll be at free agency, they could have went that route, and they find their way here to a three-year deal, uh, and Cap Friendly reported, again, the, the cash flow on this is pretty standard, and, and it's another important aspect of, of when you're getting money and signing bonuses, all that, so it's salary across the board, but at a, a 10-team limited no-trade clause does kick in, in the final year per Cap Friendly, so that's another little bonus mm-hmm. and another little nugget for the player to ensure some security here, that, and, and also for the team, it's like, hey, a new regime coming in, still going through their evaluation process, someone that they didn't draft, someone that they haven't developed, they get a two-year runway mm-hmm. here to look at things and say, hey, where are we in this relationship? And if we're in a, if we're in a similar spot a year from now or two years from now, it kind of gives them flexibility here. And this is something we were talking about on the People Show yesterday that you might have to, quote-unquote, lose the contract just to give yourself a better timeline of options here. With July 2nd coming up here and obviously uh, heading into this the, the, the draft in the offseason, you know, trying to win a Brock Besser trade was always going to be very difficult. So this outcome just extends the timeline. It kind of kicks the can down the road a little mm-hmm. bit for Alvin and Rutherford to make their assessment on what Brock Besser is. But in the here and now, you give Brock an honest chance to say, hey, it's another opportunity to you to prove yourself to the Vancouver Canucks. It's just this regime in, in place now. Well, and you're right about you're probably not going to – this contract was never going to be a win based on the $7.5 million qualifying mm-hmm. offer, really. The question was how much of that can you claw back on a three-year deal? And that's why I give Hankinson credit because he was able to keep – you know, they didn't give up about more than – what is it? 850000 per yeah. year on the 7.5 qualifier. That's not bad. So you're giving up less than a million, just slightly less than a million per given, year to make that happen. Given the leverage, a draw for the Vancouver Canucks is kind of a win in this scenario, right? It, it yes, would have been tough. Precisely. It would have been really tough to get that number down to the low sixes. And so it really would have been. Well, yes. It, 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 it would have been almost impossible. Because if you just look, like six years, sorry, six million times three is $18 million. Mm-hmm. If you were to take the the qualifying offer over two years, that's fifteen million. So just yeah. kind of settling somewhere between nineteen and twenty one million made a lot of sense for everyone. It certainly did, and uh, I think this is something that everybody can live with, you know. And I, and I think that's a really mm-hmm. important factor here. And to the point you made. Now it gives this team a little bit of runway, but the most important factor here is, and I think this is the maybe the most notable thing about this situation, they should take away from how this front office is going to handle situations. It all comes down to value for each player. Is it more valuable for you to keep the player or trade the player? That's ultimately the calculus. If you really want to, mm-hmm. you know, take it down to the most granular, granular, granular side of it, that's what it comes down to. So with Brock Besser, if you looked at the trade options, given the contract situation, given the tough year he's coming off, and given the fact that he does he's not a guy that has a ton of speed and that does kind of limit some teams that might be after him to play a significant role for that team. So when you looked at the trade market and all we kind of heard was it's kind of soft on Brock Besser. So you start looking at Brock Besser's production, however, Bick, you look at you know what he can do when he's on top of his game. What you realize was 
He's a good bet for a team if they think they can get him for less than a first-round pick and a decent prospect and sign him to a contract less than $6 million, and there's a chance he outperforms that contract. So if you look at that being the best-case scenario for Besser and another team, why would Vancouver give that up for something yeah. less? Why not you take the chance on the player and you take the chance that, that the player can and probably will outperform this three-year contract? And if he does, that's the best-case scenario. But I think that's the calculus more than we want to keep Brock. It simply came down to what makes more sense for our organization right now absolutely and i know you've been talking about hey this three-year deal for for some time and ultimately it it gets everyone what they want it it gives time for the Mm -hmm. canucks it gives security for brock bester a nice little payday and also the the secondary payday he goes into ufa now at 28 there are elements of risk to this for everyone involved but this is the thing it's like that's why we call it a compromise Everyone gets a little bit of a reward, and everyone gets a little bit of risk involved. Brock's payday is going to again come at a nice age, twenty-eight. If it's here in Vancouver, it's you know he gets a contract extension at some point, and he lives up to a certain label that Alvin and Rutherford agree with. And if it winds down, I think the least likely outcome is he 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 walks to to free agency under the Vancouver Canucks, but. If he gets traded or whatever the scenario is, he's going to get re up under thirty, which is a big deal mm-hmm. for him. No, it it certainly is. And the fact that he can hit free agency at 28, and if he has a few good years, that can really set him up really well for the future. Now, before we move on to the implications of the Canucks committing 6.65 on the cap for the next three years or for the rest of the roster, what would have to happen for Brock Besser to, one, perform to the contract, and two, outperform the contract? Is it simply as he scores 30 goals, he lives up to the money, or what do you want to see from him? I think job one is availability is the best ability, right? I, I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people doubt Brock Besser's talent. You know, he's he's been productive, albeit a little bit inconsistent at times, but we saw in the, in the North Division year how spectacular he can be. And he's generally speaking been above 0.8 points per game in his career. I think the average is 0.84. So it, it's he can be very, very productive. The biggest knock has been hey, what's the hell situation? What injuries have kept you out of the lineup or what injuries have limited your play while on the ice? If he stays healthy and he starts playing 80 games, I don't think there's going to be a lot of concern over the production that matches the cap number. It's going to be just health and just your general engagement. Now, if you get the version of Brock Besser we saw in the North Division year, this is a perfectly fine deal, and I think a lot of people will be mm-hmm. pleased. And if any, any trade or any transaction happens, it's more about aesthetics, not about production. It is, and if you look at Brock Besser, Bo Horvat, JT Miller, which player was always most likely to outperform the contract they're getting? And it's also circumstance and context. Besser was never going to get that massive contract those two players are looking at and the term that they're looking at. But it's going to be hard, no matter what contract JT Miller gets, that he significantly outperforms it over six years. Whatever contract Bo Horvat gets, especially if it's six to seven million per season in six plus years potentially, it's difficult for him to outperform that contract for the life of that deal. Besser, however, is probably your best bet at being able to outperform his contract. And I think those things are important when you're trying to project to being a contender and a winner down the road. You can't just have players worth the money. You need players that are outperforming their contracts as well. 
and, and it can't only just be the ELC players. There's great mm-hmm. value in that, but what happens with ELC players? They're young players. They're, you're going to go through the trials and tib- tribulations of managing uh, a personality that's developing at 20, 21, 22 years old, and while they're going to be literally a bit lower on the lineup, you still have to deal with that. We're seeing it with Nils Hoaglander, just the highs from a rookie year and the lows from a sophomore year. So these middle six or top six numbers and, and guys in the middle of their career, you have to win these deals. And this, in the here and now, is, again, a draw, but we'll see if Besser, if he returns to form, mm-hmm. uh, th- there's no reason to not believe he lives up to and can exceed this number. Maybe marginally. I'm not talking about like a $10 million performance here, but this is still a number that can be outperformed for Brock Besser. What do you think this means for the rest of the players on the team? Because if you look at Brock Besser, Bo Horvat, JT Miller, long-term contracts, does it make sense to commit to all three of those players in the same offseason? It's going to be tough. It, it, just because the, the numbers don't really add up. Unless you're moving two other bigger contracts elsewhere, like a, a Myers or Pearson gets out. Because um, the issue with giving them all big money, sad, is not that you can't make it fit on the cap. My biggest concern is if you give long-term contracts to three players this summer, you're also limiting what cap you can give to Elias Pettersson two summers from now. Like that's always been my big concern of tying down this many deals. Cause if you extend so much money beyond 2024, what does that change for the, the negotiation process for Elias Pettersson? And so I think a lot of people immediately see this deal and say, okay, they committed to Brock. What does that mean for, uh, JT Miller now immediately. So we'll see, I guess, in the next uh, 12 days leading up into the draft and in, into the start of free agency. Um, but it is tough to see two more people getting money unless you're you're moving out 10, 12, 13 million dollars elsewhere on the roster. Well, and that's what's going to make this complicated as far as being able to get all those three guys done. It's not just about, you know, next season you can make it work as Miller and mm-hmm. Horvat have deals in place at about just over $5 million per year each for each guy. But it's more about committing beyond that for two years at least for all three of those guys making a lot of money. You're essentially committing to this roster until the cap goes up if you do that. And there are other ways for you to find flexibility but it's not meaningful enough for you to really improve the team because all you're doing is shifting money around to kind of be where you're at and then hoping somebody really exceeds. So if you're signing everybody back to long-term deals, I'm not sure this team is that is willing in to that degree to commit itself to the cap for that long. I mean, all you're essentially doing is doubling down on this entire core for the next three to seven years. And given what we've heard, right, the the, uh, the end-of-season presser still rings in my head of a 57-game sample that looked pretty impressive, at least by yeah. the point totals, and Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin kind of just shrugging and saying, yeah, that's nice, and what's next? So, you know, we, we play this out, and I know there's deadlines coming up here of – uh, the draft and free agency. You know, I, I'd still be interested if evaluations aren't met. Are Alvin and Rutherford willing to accept the risk of going into a season and saying, hey, we're comfortable with these guys on one-year deals left mm-hmm. because let's let it play out here. If, if we can't get them signed to the number we want and we can't get the valuation we want currently in the draft market, let's yeah. continue to wait this out and we're comfortable with that level of risk. 
Yeah, and I think they are willing. The, the question is, are you willing to head into the season? I think you can wait out the summer, but do you head into the mm-hmm. season with guys unsigned to extensions? That, I think, is just a level of risk that's difficult to take. And you can do it. It just doesn't seem prudent either, given all the factors that can go against you when that starts to happen, with two players potentially that don't have deals. And, you know... Everything has been quiet on the Horvat front. We've heard speculation uh, on what that potentially could mean, and we'll see what that means as time goes on. As far as the JT Miller camp goes, as far as I know, there has been a desire to keep him, but at some point, do you get an idea that you can't? And so as far as the, the JT Miller trade potential goes and the Horvat trade slash um, you know, extension potential goes, I think those two things still remain largely unsolved so far. And it's suppose it's uh, the the onus is on the rest of the NHL to change that calculus for uh, Patrick Alvin and, and Jim Rutherford to say, hey, we have to listen to this offer. Until that arrives, uh, I, I would imagine you go through the process of seeing if you can retain them on your own before then. Yeah, and especially on the JT front. And we'll see what happens with some of these contracts, especially the Philip Forsberg one, and what type of impact, if any, that could have on where JT Miller and his side stand. Now, of course, this signing, the Canucks signing Brock Besserter three-year deal, isn't the only news that was made today. The Canucks, well, they also signed Jack Rathbone to a two-year contract worth 850000 per year, one-way deal. And they also signed Noel Juleson and William Lockwood to two way deals as well but the Rathbone one is notable in, in a few ways the first one being the fact that you're be getting him signed to a two-year deal at less than a million per year that's a really smart bet to make first and foremost pick because if he hits and plays for you right away then you have a second year and next to nothing on the cap it's it's really clever uh, work here because if you're Jack Rathbone, you get a nice contract here, fully guaranteed, one way, so you're getting a, a, a nice chunk of change, especially for a guy you know who's had his own uh, struggles staying healthy here. So this is a good deal for him as well. And this just provides a platform to say, hey, you have an opportunity now to make this team because we're committing to you both uh, with term here and with with the the way this deal is structured, it being a one year deal or a one way deal. This is providing him a, a two year runway to really make this team. But really, to to me, it speaks to hey, your opportunity to make it is now as well. It really is now. It doesn't mean that this contract guarantees his spot on the roster i think no of course the the hope is that he's going to be on the team next season but they can still send him down without him having to go through waivers despite being on a one-way deal absolutely true but i I just i I do look the 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 way this deal is structured and just where he is in his own development curve right this isn't a 20 year old player like he he just turned 23 sat like he has to make this jump at some point in his career, uh, you can't keep putting him in bubble wrap and just assuming, hey, down the road, Jack Rathbone is coming. This is the time. Like, it's he's gone through two, uh, yeah. one pro season and a, a little bit of there at the end of last year. So th- this is now the time for him to try to make that transition. It really is. And and the fact that he gets a little bit of security for two years, it's not a bad thing for a player who's only played, you know, a few games in the National Hockey League so far in his young career. And what are we expecting from Jack Rathbone when he comes to camp? And I think this is also a bit difficult to answer as we were speaking today because we're not quite sure what else the Canucks might do to add to their blue line. But as it stands right now, do we expect Jack Rathbone to fight to just make the team or fight to be an everyday player on the team in training camp? 
Hey, for every NHL player, what is it? Uh, arrive, survive, and thrive. So he's now in yeah. the arrive phase. Uh, now it's the survival phase, right? Make the team, push that battle. You know, it, it's going to be difficult, but, but you know, Travis Dermott exists, obviously. And with with Hughes and, and OEL kind of being the incumbent top two, uh, just just making the third pair is a massive first step for for Jack Rathbone. Oh, it, it really is. And it's a small little thing. And we'll see what T- Tucker Pullman's, you know, status will be long term. But he's a player who signed, you know, to some term. But now the Canucks have Quinn Hughes, Oliver Ekman Larson, and Jack Rathbone at least signed for the next two years. So, you know, you have half your defense signed potentially if Rathbone does become an everyday player for you. And I think as far as team planning goes, like you mentioned, it's a clever little thing that you did. But it does help the organization in small little meaningful ways. And that can go a long way long term. But, uh, you know, Anything else as far as Jack Rathbone signing do you think it signifies? Because one of the things that we were discussing, you know, this past week on Canucks Central was if the Canucks are adding to their defense, who Mm -hmm. could be on the outside looking in? Now, I don't think this Jack Rathbone deal really impacts anybody who signed because you have eight defensemen now signed to contracts. We include Burroughs and also Tucker Pullman. But it's getting to the point now where one more addition, you're probably looking to move somebody out. Well, even without an addition, Sat, right? Like, they've talked about improving the play from the back end, whether it's by structure uh, or just talent or, or just style of play. And mm-hmm. there's certain players I look at in the fold right now that don't have a lot of versatility to them. They can be very good players in their own right, but Luke Shen's not going to become this fleet of foot D-man. He's good as a pair with Quinn Hughes because he's very aware of what he can and cannot do, and it works well playing off of Quinn Hughes. You know, Tucker Pullman plays his game if he's going to be healthy. Kyle Burrows, we, we saw him last year, and he brought a certain level of physicality, and you know, to be honest, a, a lot of courageous play with his, with his physicality, but, mm-hmm. you know, he, he when he played in certain minutes like he was kind of sheltered and you can't really put him in the top four role. Tyler Myers, I, I think we've seen enough of the sample size to kind of understand what Tyler Myers is. There's just not a lot of versatility. So if you intend to improve the overall talent of the defense, the, the sheer number of bodies right now is kind of mind boggling how you intend to go around this. Well, and because if you look at the team right now, I mean, they have just a bit over two million in cap space. But you also have Michael Furlan and LTIR that you can kind of go into. But you start looking at the roster now. With Besser signed, and now with Jack Rathbone also inked, the only you know two players who they really got to sign or have to consider signing are Matthew Highmore and Yuho Lamico, and those guys are coming in at less than a million as well. So you start looking at it, the picture, especially now that Besser is done, it leaves the Canucks pick with roughly three to four million to play with, in addition to getting Highmore and Lamico signed if you use LTIR. Yeah, it, it it's it's tight. It's really tight, and that's why yeah. we keep bringing up those same names. And and this is the thing Jim Rutherford talked about as well. If you're trying to create a cap cushion from the bottom end of the roster, you know Tanner Pearson, Tyler Myers, mm. Connor Garland, yeah. that that group, like that, could be upwards of fourteen million dollars if you really wanted to. Uh, try to get all of them off the roster. I, I'd be skeptical you'd be able to get all three, but nevertheless, you move one of those guys, you can creep that number up that's somewhere around $4 million, maybe closer to 7 to $10 million, yeah. just to give yourself a little bit of leeway here. Well, and one thing too, if I kind of think back this because in the NFL they often look at this as a builder team out. It's like, hey, can we have a roster? Like, if you have to play a game next week, that we have enough players that can play a game mm-hmm. next week. 
the Canucks can play a game tomorrow if they wanted to because oh, they yeah. have essentially the whole roster under contract now. And I think that gives the team, as much as you want to clear cap space, you want to make the team better, you want to make things happen, but I think that gives the team a little bit of patience and confidence and knowing that at the very least we can feel the team that we feel is is going to be competitive and we may have options now you want to do other things but i think what this does is right ahead of free agency pick it sets them up in a position where they have some level of they can be really patient and pick their spots and i think that's really important for them They've game planned for the worst-case scenario, right? If you can't yeah. trade anyone and you can't get any deals, the worst-case scenario is, hey, you run it back. And you run it back with a team that just had a you know a nice end to the season, really playing well at 107-point pace under Bruce Boudreau, and say, hey, is this the team? Can we remain kind of in the fold? And we'll decide on the fly and try to, whether it's a retool, whether it's a rebuild, let the results dictate the actions of what can happen moving forward. But... That's the worst-case scenario unfolding. If, mm-hmm. if trade opportunities present themselves, free agency opportunities present themselves, what can you do in the here and now? But as you said, if, if they need to play with this roster tomorrow, they can do that. They, yeah, and I think that gives them a little bit, I wouldn't say leverage, but gives them some confidence and some clarity as they start heading into the offseason to do some more work. Now, Noah Juleson, uh, just for posterity, signed for 750 k on a two-way deal, and William Lockwood also signed for 750 k on a two-way deal. Now, for William Lockwood, that helps him. You know, hey, he was never going to get a lot, but being at the league minimum on a two-way deal he has a chance at camp next season to beat out one of those guys, whether it is a Matthew Highmore or it is a Yuho Lamico. Now, Lamico's going to play center most likely, but depending on who else they bring out, you know, Lockwood at 750K, just to kind of mention his name there, I think it's important that they brought him back and they, they think he could do something. And it gives him a, a chance here to maybe break camp with the team. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the Kuzmenko edition has really kind of clouded how deep the, the wingers are. Yeah. So Lockwood, if, if he... You know, shows out well. His ceiling right now might be just the the extra forward, but that's still a big bonus right now for the Vancouver Canucks just to have the flexibility to say, "Hey, if we need to put you back in the AHL, we can still do that." But you have an opportunity to compete again with Matt Highmore, who I, I think has, has had a good season and probably is the incumbent on that fourth line. So it might be difficult for Lockwood to kind of usurp him in that spot. But nevertheless. It, it, Another scenario where a good compromise and everyone can walk away happy. Will Lockwood, I would expect, would get a lot of minutes, whether it's in the AHL or get his opportunity mm-hmm. in the NHL. Well, the biggest thing for him is going to have to be staying healthy. And mm-hmm. that's what he's going to have to do. And if he can, we'll see if he can carve out a role for himself in the National Hockey League. That uh, wraps up the player side of the movement for the Canucks today with the signings that they've done. Brock Besser, Jack Rathbone, Noah Juleson, and Will Lockwood being re-signed by the organization. Well, the Canucks also made some stuff happen behind the bench and a few notable ones. Let's start with the big news, which is Trent Call is no longer the head coach of the Abbotsford Canucks, but he's staying with the organization, moving to an assistant position with the Vancouver Canucks and with the Abbotsford Canucks, Jeremy Colleton, former head coach of the Chicago Blackhawks, is now the head coach of the Abbotsford Canucks. And Mike Yo has been hired to replace Brad Shaw, who is leaving the Vancouver Canucks organization and joining John Tortorella's staff with the Philadelphia Flyers. So that is notable in and of itself, too. Mike Yo's name has been, had been mentioned a while back and had been out there. He's a guy who's been a former head coach. And if you're looking at a guy 
to be, you know, the assistant, you know, the right-hand man to the head coach and a guy who has experience and can handle a lot of things on the bench, that's really what Mike Yo does. Trent Call, we'll see, you know, how his responsibilities align. But I look at Mike Yo as being the Bradshaw replacement. But I would say, Bick, losing Bradshaw, and we'll see what Mike Yo can do, is not an insignificant loss, I don't think. No, he, he absolutely you know, really grew into the season. And when yeah. he was a bit more empowered with certain duties and certain roles, you saw that success show itself uh, on the ice, uh, most notably with the penalty kill and the progress they made. And I would say, like, this, it's, it's a really unfortunate loss because Bradshaw came in very highly touted, obviously, but it never really felt like the, the right fit. Uh, or, or at least it took a while for that opportunity to develop for Bradshaw. Now, that's not to say, hey, he didn't fit with the organization. It just the, 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 the entire characteristics of last season uh, were, were so murky. And he gets to go somewhere that I imagine he's very familiar with, working with John Tortorella again and immediately empowered to be the number two in that scenario, running the defense, running the PK in a role mm-hmm. that he's held previously. So I imagine for Bradshaw, this just looks like a very obvious step to and a promotion to say, hey, this this is a lot more comfortable for me. Well, it is a promotion, of course, and that's kind of had been the buzz. And my understanding is Bradshaw was very open to taking a promotion going elsewhere. So mm-hmm. for people kind of wondering, was this Vancouver pushing Bradshaw out or bringing Mikey O in? Uh, that's not as far as I know it. As far as I know it is. And it's not to say that Bradshaw was unhappy, but I think that he wanted the promotion and the different opportunity because I think he came in with a different understanding. It didn't quite go the way, you know, obviously that they wanted. New coaching staff comes in, his contract's almost up, and there's a chance for promotion. There's a chance to do other things and more security. It just makes sense for Bradshaw, but I think this is really Bradshaw being willing to take a promotion more than it is Vancouver being willing to let him go. And they can't really get in his way if somebody's willing to offer him a promotion. No, absolutely not. And it, it, it's it's what you want good organizations to do. Sad to say, hey, if yeah. you have a chance to get a promotion, we can't offer it to you. Then yeah, go ahead and explore that opportunity. Now, on Mike Yo's responsibilities, you know, I, I I'd be lying if I said I knew exactly what Mike Yo is good at as mm-hmm. a head coach and what he can really bring and all those sort of things. But one thing I can say is usually guys who are head coaches, they have some strengths. Even though they may have failed as head coaches or they may have not had the results you would have wanted to see from a head coach, that doesn't mean that individual can't bring meaningful contributions as an assistant. And somebody who has been hired a few times to be a head coach, it's not like that he doesn't have any pedigree. So for all the skepticism around Mike Yo, and I can't sit here and pretend to know exactly what he's going to bring to the organization, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a bad thing. No, it, it's you. Know, you want more bodies in the fold to be able to collaborate and bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, remains to be seen again because we, we had the same conversation last year when it was Brad Shaw brought in. It's like, okay, where is he going to be able to fit, and will his voice be heard? It, look, it, it's just another pair of eyes in the building, uh, and certainly someone that has a lot of experience as well. So we've seen a lot of scenarios, and and it'll be interesting to see how this all gets navigated in the totality of the entire coaching staff because look you do still have Jason King there Trent Call always comes in Ian Clark remains obviously and Boudreaux is is going to be there as well so uh, I'd be interested to see exactly how he fits into the fold yeah I mean it will be really interesting to see how that all kind of shakes together now the final thing we should hit is really why the Abbotsford Canucks decided or why the Canucks decided to change the head coach of the Abbotsford Canucks especially when not too long ago the Canucks themselves management said 
the coaching staff is coming back and they're going to be back with the absolute Canucks. They have contracts in place, especially Trent Call. Now, on the surface, you can you can totally sell it as Trent Call is getting a promotion to going from the AHL as a head coach to being an assistant coach in the NHL. And yeah, you can totally look at it that way. But I think it also says a lot. The team wanted to have its own direction for the head coach of that organization. And they wanted to move into a new direction with their idea of player development and what they wanted to do. And one thing Jerry McCarlton was very well regarded in was bringing young players along, being able to connect with them really well, being able to relate with them and in developing them and helping them on. Now, we can criticize the job with the Blackhawks and all those sort of things. But as far as what this team is really harping on, development, reaching players, finding a way to get the most out of them, and a coach that does seem to go into that category as that type of a coach, I think that says a lot, Vic. Yeah, and, and, and grew with the process, right? Going through the Rockford system, getting to Chicago, and obviously you know, applied his trade overseas as well, uh, in Sweden as well. So he, he's been doing this head coaching gig for a while. Obviously, you know, being an NHL, going to AHL again is, is a bit of a step back, but will remains to be seen exa- exactly um, – what level of success Abbotsford has with him at the helm. But as, as it's been stated so many times, the AHL for these guys is about development. And if this is one of his calling cards, being able to develop players, we'll see how that goes uh, at the AHL level in relation to getting actual results, which was, I think, uh, a, a bit of a demand last year with the team uh, just debuting in Abbotsford. Well, and if you look at what this team has done, I mean, every single main Every single big department has had huge changeover. Mm-hmm. You know, you started with Bruce Boudreaux as a head coach, and we go through management and all those sort of things, and it's even reached other levels of the organization, off-vice and even really hockey ops-wise. And it didn't really make sense, though, that you're coming back with the same leader when you're trying to make development better of the coach for your AHL team who's been there for a long time. That never jived. So it's interesting, though, because not to say that these guys you know, are out there lying. And, yeah, they give us you know pretty good intel on what they're going to do, big picture or pretty generally speaking. But they're also a bit coy with how they go about things because mm-hmm. they're pretty they were pretty you know adamant about Trent Call coming back but when you look at everything they've done that that didn't make sense this move makes far more sense when you look at the totality of everything they're trying to accomplish well they've very much made the idea of the AHL a priority just just reintroducing that player development model that they had success with Pittsburgh bringing that here now is it easier to do with a, with a clean slate and bring someone in? Probably. And, and bring a Jeremy Carlton and say, hey, this is the way we're doing it. You get a clean slate with all the players down there. And we are going to populate this roster so you can p- have your hand in developing these guys. And, to, you know, to your point, it, it's it, – is there too much scar tissue with, with someone like Trent Cole in that scenario to say, hey – we, we don't know exactly what's gone in here the past few years. Maybe it's just easier to move you up to the big club and, and play an assistant role. Yeah, I mean, that that could be – you have the guy under contract already. And, and I don't mm. think they were lying when they said they like certain things, you know, the things that Trent Call has brought. And they just probably saw it as, hey, we have this guy under contract. We like the guy. It makes sense for him to move into this position, and we can accomplish our goal of bringing somebody in that aligns with what we're trying to accomplish as a head coach of the Abbotsford Canucks. But I do think, you know, Carlton – on the surface, and we'll see how it works out, is a good hire for an AHL gig. Getting a, getting a guy who's just an NHL head coach to coach your AHL team that has that sort of background, on the surface, I think looks like a really strong hire. 
more capable people within the organization. Exactly. You know, precisely. All right, Vic, I, th- I think that pretty much covers everything. Is there, do you have any other thoughts on what the Canucks have done today or maybe looking to do the rest of this weekend? Uh, I, I hope they're planning to take the weekend off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have plans the rest of this weekend? Uh, yeah, I'm going to Seattle. Oh, you are? When are you going tomorrow? I, I, I won't be able to do an emergency pod with you tomorrow. I'm sorry, Seth. Oh, okay, okay. Well, you know, uh, even if I did have plans the rest of this weekend, they're definitely not happening now. So, uh, well, that's a story for a different day. But, yo, Bick, uh, always a pleasure, man. A lot of fun on this Canuck Central emergency podcast. I'm Satyar Shaw. He's Bick Nazar. And Bick may not be uh, back the rest of this weekend if something happens. I'm not even sure I will, depending on what happens, when it happens. But if it does, be rest assured we will have something coming on the Canuck Central feed. Thanks so much for listening.